Well, we're carrying on our series in the book of Romans this morning. And we're going to, Dan's shortly going to come and explain Romans 11, chapter, chapter 11, verses 1 to 10 to us. Um, but Tom and Marina are going to uh, read from, for, from the Bible this morning. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, uh, you might want to flick to Romans 11. If you've got it on your phone, you might want to scroll there. And um, Tom and Marina are going to come and read, and then Dan is going to bring us God's Word. Our reading this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Roman Church. It's in chapter 11, verses 1 to 10, and he's speaking about the remnant of Israel. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know that scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there's a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, and ears that could not hear to this very day. David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. May God add his blessing to that reading of his word. Read it. Right, let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this living word of God that we have. Lord, we thank you that you can speak to us through it in any situation we might find ourselves in. But Lord, we really thank you for the Apostle Paul, the way you called him to be your servant, taking the word of God to many, many different places. Lord, we thank you that he was so knowledgeable about the word of God because of his training. And he was able to use this in his writing to the Roman church, Lord, quoting many, many scriptures from the Old Testament. Lord, we do thank you that we've just heard about Elijah and the way he was so depressed, really, because he felt he was the only one left. And sometimes, Lord, we may feel like that, that we are the only one um, serving you in our workplace, in our school. But, Lord, we're not. We know that. We know there's many people who are your children. Lord, help us to be encouraged by that. And Lord, we thank you too that we're reminded there that we're all chosen by grace. There's nothing any one of us can do to obtain salvation. It's all by God's grace. So we all come the same way. We're all exactly the same. We are sinners, Lord, needing to be saved by your wonderful grace. And we thank you for that. 
Lord, we are hungry for your word, and we do pray that you would feed us this morning through Dan. We pray that you would really bless him, Lord, as he shares what he has already been studying this week. Lord, I really pray that you would just help him to really be used by your Holy Spirit, Lord, to enable all your children to be fed this morning. Lord, I'm reminded of an old uh, song I used to sing in Sunday school, which is many years ago now. It was, it was make the book live to me, O Lord. Show me yourself within your word. Show me myself and show me my saviour and make the book live to me. Lord, that is our prayer today, that you would make your word live today through Dan's teaching us this morning. So, Lord, bless him and bless the rest of this service, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Well, thank you so much, uh, Tom and Marina, for uh, reading that passage and praying for us as we look through it. And do keep your Bibles open in front of you if you have them. It would be great to do that as we look at this passage that we've just had read out. I don't know whether you can remember what crowds are. Uh, I certainly find it hard to imagine at times when large groups of people would uh, come together, whether that would be uh, filling a, a massive stadium like Wembley, or whether that would be being jammed into a southern train heading into London in the morning, or whether that would be listening to some live music, maybe at a music festival over the summer. And yet when I think back to those times that I was a part of large crowds like that, it would often be at those times for some reason that I would begin to re reflect as I, I saw the amount of people around me, I'd begin to reflect on, on actually asking questions, just seeing the scale of people who seem to be uninterested in who Jesus is. The scale of people that just seem to be going about life thinking that Jesus offers nothing of value. Thinking that Jesus offers nothing of significance. And then I would begin to ask myself, well, is anyone going to respond? Will anyone want to listen to what the Bible has to offer in the good news that it says? It just seems like more and more people don't want to listen. And when that happens, we might think, oh, do you know what? Well, why even bother? Why even bother talking about something that people have clearly no interest in hearing and, and will probably just dismiss anyway? And it becomes a lot easier, I guess, when we live in a society and a culture that just so widely rejects the gospel to start believing it's not really worth sharing the gospel at all. And you know, in our passage in Romans, Paul is faced with a similar situation. And in our passage in Romans this morning, Paul's actually going to challenge that. And I believe our passage is going to give us real confidence this morning. Confidence that even in the face of rejection we might see, even in the face of uninterest we see all around us, actually, the truth is God is working. God is working. 
And what we see all around us isn't the end of the story. And one of the aims, one of the, the, the end results I hope of this morning as we share and look at this passage is that we as a church family would grow in our confidence and also our enthusiasm for sharing the gospel, the good news of Jesus with those around us. And as we go through our passage and as we see and we look at that, I've got three points that will hopefully guide us through and hopefully help us in understanding the passage. The first point is unexpected. That's from verses one to four. Because we saw last week, Paul ends chapter 10 before our passage starts this morning with this beautiful and yet, and yet very sad image of God holding out his hands, holding out his hands, longing that his people Israel would turn towards him, and yet they don't turn towards him. Holding out his hands, longing that they would turn. And, and actually what we find is that Paul says that those who have found God, those that have turned to God, weren't even looking for him in the first place. Uh, look with me at chapter 10, verse 20. It says, I was found by those who did not seek me. And that leads Paul to ask the question that opens up chapter 11, where he says, verse 1, did God reject his people? The question really is, if God is revealing himself not just to Israel anymore, but now to all the nations around the world, well, does that mean that God has given up on his people that we've seen right the way through the Old Testament? Does that mean that God has now rejected them and he's gone to reach others? And Paul, in his classic Romans way that we've seen time and time again through his letter, he responds by saying an emphatic, by no means. Paul's determined to show that God hasn't rejected his people. That even in the face of hard-heartedness, that even in the face of rejection and dismissal of who Jesus is and what he's done There is hope. And Paul goes on to show that by using two key blocks of evidence in our passage. And the first one, the first block of evidence, is himself. Look with me at verse 1. Paul says, I am an Israelite myself, descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul says, well, God hasn't rejected his people because I myself am. I'm an Israelite. I am a Jew who has come to believe in Jesus. And Paul's use of himself as evidence is actually double encouraging for us this morning, isn't it? Because Paul himself has the most incredible testimony. You see, if there was anyone, anyone who was an example of someone who was hostile to the gospel, the message of Jesus, it was Paul. Paul was someone who pursued Christians. Someone who wanted to arrest Christians. Someone who presided over the execution of Christians. Someone who didn't want Christians to even name Jesus. We see his story in Acts chapter 9. If you want to go and read it, I'd encourage you to that. You see, Paul is proof 
that even when it looks like someone is the most ardent opponent of the gospel, that's not necessarily the end of the story. And Paul went from the biggest gospel silencer in history to the greatest gospel proclaimer in history. He came to love Jesus. God hasn't rejected his people. Paul knew that if anyone on this planet should have been rejected, should have been stopped from knowing God's love and God's grace, it should have been Paul. It should have been him. And yet Paul is proof that God hasn't rejected his people. And he's drawing them to himself. That's the first block of evidence. But then Paul uses a a second block of evidence. And that's Elijah. Look with me at verse 2. He says, Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And Paul then uses Elijah as an example And the story of Elijah is one where Elijah, he was a prophet. He was someone who spoke God's word to the people. And Elijah, well, he's in the the midst of a people who it seems have rejected the Lord and gone to worship this God Baal instead. And there's this queen in charge who's ruling Jezebel and she wants to kill Elijah. And so Elijah, he runs and he seeks refuge on Mount Carmel. And it's on Mount Carmel that Elijah cries out to God, thinking he's the only faithful one left. And yet what's God's response to him? God says, actually, Elijah, you're mistaken. You're not the only one left. I have for myself 7,000 who haven't turned to Baal, but will turn to me. He says, Elijah, you just can't see them yet. You don't know who they are. And that's Paul's point here in Romans. Maybe Paul himself feels a bit like Elijah, like he's the only one from maybe Israel who have turned. But God says, you're not the only one now. There is a remnant, there is a group of people that will in time respond to the gospel. And it's important to note here that Paul is primarily speaking here of a remnant among his own people, Israel. That there will be people who like Paul are Jews, who like Paul come to know Jesus and trust in him as king. Paul is proof, Elijah is proof of that. But these examples too serve to offer us great hope this morning in the midst of the rejection and the dismissal that we see around us. We know that it's God's will to have a people made up of all nations, Jews and Gentiles to become one people, one family of believers in the Lord Jesus. And both of these examples Both serve to offer us confidence this morning, encouragement this morning. As we're reminded when it looks like no one is wanting to listen. When we're reminded that maybe it seems like we're the only one in our workplaces, in our schools, in our university, maybe even in our homes 
that seems to have trusted in Jesus. Actually, that is not the end of the story. And however hard-hearted and dismissive people will be of the gospel, this shows us that people will. People will come, as we saw last week, to cry out, Jesus is Lord. You know, I remember meeting up with a, a guy, I was having a chat with him, a conversation about how he became a Christian. He was about my age, and he was sharing his testimony. And he was saying that, when he was at university, he was one of the most ardent atheists that you could have ever met. Uh, he went to Cambridge, so obviously he was quite smart. And he used to share how at weekends, if he had nothing to do, he would go and find a local church and he would sit in church services waiting to have conversations with Christians afterwards to explain to them and to show them just how silly their faith was to show how naive it was to believe the things that are written in the Bible. And he said that he would try and demean and, and even ruin the faith of many Christians. And then he went to one church where they opened up the Bible and he was surprised at the answers that they gave to his questions. He met people who were on his level intellectually and actually who gave a very logical, very practical explanation of why they believed in Jesus and how actually they were Christians not in spite of the evidence, but were Christians because of the evidence. And this guy who had spent his time trying to ruin and dismissing the Christian faith actually he became a Christian and he got baptized and he went to a church not to argue with people, but to go and listen to God's word. The very thing that he wouldn't have ever imagined doing. So I can imagine if I was at university with him and we're going to have to imagine pretty hard this morning because of where he went to university. But if I can imagine if I was at university with him and I was thinking about all the people around me that maybe I could begin a conversation with about my faith, people who I could maybe start that with, well, I'd be looking at this guy and I'd be thinking, there is no way this guy is ever going to come to know Jesus. There's no way, way this guy is going to ever want to even listen or entertain the idea of that. And I'm sure this morning we might call to mind those that we think they would never listen. They would never want to respond. And it's important to note as we say that, that Paul in Romans has said that not all will respond. Not all will come to believe that Jesus is king. Not all will have that story of Paul or this guy that I met who went to university. Not all will have that story of maybe atheist to believer or, or Paul from rejecting to believing. Not all will. But whilst Paul shows us that not all will come to believe in the gospel, Paul says in our passage, not all will reject the gospel. And just like these blocks of evidence of Paul and Elijah shows us, even when it looks impossible, even when it seems like there's no one else around, we have overlooked one massive part of this morning's passage. Because often when I think that no one will listen I have overlooked the most important factor that makes all the difference this morning. God. God is at work. Do you see that right the way through this passage? 
behind the scenes. God is there at work. Those he foreknew. God is at work. Even though I might be at work in some way, I'm actually not. God is. And so it shouldn't be a surprise this morning when those that would seem that would never listen start to listen. When those we couldn't imagine responding start to respond. Paul knows that God is at work in all of this. God is at work. And that is the difference this morning between evangelism and our conversations with people looking impossible to start being possible. God is at work working to draw all those he foreknew to himself. That makes all the difference. Paul knows it from his own life, and I'm sure you and me this morning, if we've come to believe in Jesus, we look back at our lives and we see how God was at work in every part of our lives up until that point that we said, Jesus, you're my saviour and Lord. And we saw the way that God used people and he used the places and he used things that he brought into our lives. So we would get to that point. God's the one at work. And that makes all the difference. Paul knows it from his own life. We see it from Elijah. It's not the end of the story. And that brings us to the second point we've got this morning, which is undeserved from verses five to six. You see, that's what Paul goes on to explain. Because it's all God's work, it's all grace. Look with me at verse five. Paul says, so too at this present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. That verse, it actually points us back to something we saw earlier in the last chapter, chapter 10, verse 2. If you look with me, if you uh, flip back, it says, Paul says, for I can testify about them, Israel, that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge, since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own. They did not submit to God's righteousness. The problem that Paul outlines about his own people, Israel, is that whilst they long to know God, whilst they're zealous for God, they tried to make it on their own, in their own effort, according to their own works. And so Paul, in our passage, he emphasizes that those who will respond will respond realizing that they can't do it by themselves. That there's nothing they can do to make them right with God. But there is something God has done in his son, the Lord Jesus. And that word grace, that undeserved loving kindness of God that we have come to hear time and time again in this series of Romans. You know, we might think by chapter 11 in Romans, Paul might have started talking about something different, but he hasn't. Because whilst grace seems like a really lovely idea that should seem very easy for us to accept, actually, we can find grace a really hard battle to believe and to accept. Paul showed that Israel, who were super religious, found grace, an alien concept, a, a concept that not just they found hard, but they didn't want to accept. They wanted to make it on their own. And grace can be especially hard for us today to accept. You know, especially in, in a Western society where we're told that, well, we can do anything. 
if we just work and try hard enough. And yet grace says to us, we can do nothing. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing that can make us right with God ourselves. But in fact, God has done everything. We're made to pay for everything in our culture, aren't we? If we want something, we have to buy it. And yet grace says we receive it as a gift, free of charge. And the price has been paid by someone else, the Lord Jesus, that we've remembered in our time this morning. We're constantly made, aren't we, to list our achievements, to show why we're worthy of things, whether that be at school or whether we're writing out CVs for jobs, to show why we are the best and the, the most worthy candidate for something. And yet grace says to us, there's nothing that makes us better or more worthy of God's love. And the only achievement that God cares about is nothing that we have, but what Jesus has done on the cross. That is the only achievement that God sees as worthy. We live in an individualistic culture, don't we, that puts ourselves at the center of the universe. And grace says to us, we are not at the center of the universe. Jesus is at the center of it. And everything else revolves around him. And yet he, the king, loves us, loves you this morning. Even though grace is lovely, we can find it a battle to accept. And for many Christians, you know, this is a ongoing battle for many. This battle to receive God's forgiveness and love as a gift, by grace. But Paul this morning shows us again that whilst we might battle against grace and find it hard to trust him fully, there is no other way to get to God, to know God, than by grace, than by trusting fully in Jesus. It has to be this way. And whilst Paul is waiting for his own people, Israel, to stop battling and to stop trying to make it on their own, so too this morning, if we are battling with the idea of grace, if we, are, if we have come through 11 chapters of Romans and we're still really battling with the idea of letting go of our own efforts and trying to make it in our own strength and actually trusting all in Jesus, then this morning we need to see what Paul is relentlessly trying to show us in Romans. Grace is the only way we can be made right with God. We need to stop letting go and everything else that we're trusting and simply come to Jesus, the one who's done everything for us. Undeserved. But finally, and briefly this morning, unconscious. That's the last part of our passage from verses 7 to 10. You see, in the last part of our passage, Paul raises another question. Do you see it in verse 7? Look with me. He says, what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain? The question Paul has again points us back to what we saw in the last chapter. How is it that those who have wanted more than anything to know God haven't actually found, obtained what they were wanting? I mean, this seems so unfair, doesn't it? This seems so unfair. The people who wanted to know God, it seems haven't found God. And we've seen, haven't we, that actually we, they're looking in the wrong place. But Paul responds in verse 7, and he says, The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, that is, an unconscious spirit, 
Eyes that could not see, ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. (laughs) Wow. You see, at first glance, it seems like Paul has just addressed a question that highlighted the unfairness of things by answering it, by showing maybe just how unfair things are. He says the elect among them did. That is, those that God foreknew have found what they were seeking. That, that remnant we've seen earlier in the passage, they've come to know and turn to God. But Paul says the others were hardened. And Paul explains that by quoting from two parts of the Old Testament. The first quote in verse 8 of our passage comes from Deuteronomy 29. And Paul also blends in a bit of Isaiah for good measure. But um, the main part of the quote comes from Deuteronomy 29. And that is a quote where Moses is speaking to God's people Israel after they have just come out of slavery in Egypt, after their exodus. And interestingly, just before Moses quotes the bit that we see in Romans, he says something just before to, his, to the people. And he says this in Deuteronomy 29. He says, with your own eyes, you saw those great trials, those signs and great wonders. Moses says to the people, you saw what God did. When you were in Egypt, you saw all of the plagues that God brought. You saw how God parted the Red Sea in front of you. And yet you still rejected God. You saw it, yet you rejected. And Paul takes that part of scripture and he uses it to illustrate to what's happened to Israel. You know, it's been great over these past few Monday mornings to be involved in Christianity Explored. And over those past weeks, we've been taking and looking through one of Jesus's Uh, uh, biographies of his life, uh, the book of Mark. And as we've gone through Mark, we've seen Jesus' life and the things that he did. Uh, You know, the things that, you know, Jesus calming the storm, how Jesus healed the sick, how Jesus fed thousands of people with, it seems, just a sandwich, how Jesus raised the dead. And he did all of those things, Mark records, in front of crowds, in front of people, in front of eyewitnesses. In fact, John's gospel account of Jesus' life, it begins in John 1.11 by saying that Jesus, he came to that which was his own, his own people, but his own did not receive him. And as we've gone through Christianity Explored and we've gone through Mark's gospel, we've, we've been introduced to these characters called Pharisees who are the religious leaders. And they saw with their own eyes some of the miraculous things that Jesus did. And yet instead of believing in Jesus, which you would expect the logical direction of that to be, we see that they plot Jesus' death instead. They reject Jesus And that's what the quote from verse 9 and 10 in our Romans passage from Psalm 69 shows too. That psalm is one where King David, who is God's anointed king, is on the run from his enemies. And that part of the psalm, it outlines the judgment that comes in rejecting God's anointed king. And this helps us 
see what we've been seeing actually right the way through Romans. Maybe in these last couple of chapters especially. This theme of God hardening hearts. And that seems on the surface, doesn't it? It just seems so unfair. Why would God do that? But these quotes from the Old Testament that Paul writes here show us that people have been given opportunities with their own eyes to see God's king, Jesus, when he came. They saw with their own eyes what Jesus did, who Jesus was, and yet God's hardening of their hearts is simply an extension of their already hard heart. We saw earlier in Romans, didn't we? Paul, he talked about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Again, uh, taken from the Exodus story. And yet when we look at that story, actually before we see God hardens Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. God's hardening is just an extension, a highlighting of how our hearts already are. And that's what we see in Romans. This isn't unfair. This is God highlighting our heart's natural state. Our hearts naturally reject God. No one has to teach us that. And yet, when we get to the end of verse 10, the last part of our passage, it seems so hopeless, doesn't it? If you look, it just seems like there's no hope. It seems so final. Is there any hope with that? Well, look with me at the start of next week's passage. And I'm sorry, Andy, I'm not going to tread on your toes. But chapter 11, verse 11. Look with me at the, uh, the start of next week's passage. Paul says, again, I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Paul says, is it really over? Is there any hope? What does Paul say? Not at all. And we've seen this morning, haven't we, that there really is hope in the face of rejection and hardened hearts. Paul himself, Elijah, all of these blocks of evidence, and even though what we saw in the verses before our passage started of God still holding out his hands, longing for people to return to him. As Paul said in chapter 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on that name will be saved. And so this morning when I'm next part of a large crowd, uh, probably in 2033 or something like that, and I look and I reflect, maybe I'm tempted to be despondent in my enthusiasm for talking about Jesus, maybe even tempted to believe that no one ever is going to listen. Well, this morning, let us as a church draw so much confidence and enthusiasm for making Jesus known this morning because God has promised that people will respond to the gospel. Because in that crowd that I might look out, I have no idea, like Elijah, who it is that might be waiting to realize that their name was written in heaven before God created anything. Because as we've seen, even the hardest heart can come to love Jesus. Ask Paul that. And so we as a church, despite the rejection maybe we face, despite the uninterest, do you know, let's keep praying. 
Keep praying for those that we see around us who don't know Jesus yet. Let's keep speaking. Let's keep loving and serving and blessing those that we find ourselves around each day, knowing this, that God is working. And because God is working, that makes all the difference. Paul knows that. And he's written that for our encouragement this morning. God is working. And he's asked us to be involved in the process. What a privilege, eh? This morning. Amen. Well, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it encourages us. And we pray, Father, that the result of our time this morning would be that we wouldn't, Lord, give up hope. We wouldn't, Lord, begin to retreat because we think that no one wants to listen anymore. But Father, you would, you would infuse our hearts. You would fuel our hearts with such joy this morning, knowing that even when it looks impossible, Father, you are at work. And because you are at work, that makes all the difference. And we know, Father, that you are working to draw those that you know to a relationship with you. And we pray that we as your church would be used in that incredible process of sharing and speaking of the Lord Jesus and the incredible news that he brings. And we pray that in each of our lives, you would use us. Lord, even if it is just to impact one life, even if it's just one person, that we can share the good news of Jesus with. Oh Lord, would you help us? And would you encourage us and strengthen us and embolden us to make Jesus known and to trust you, God, that you are the Lord who holds every heart. And so Lord, we come before you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.